Mark chapter 6, find verse 30 is where we're going to start in our scripture reading. I had a fun-filled afternoon, so many neat things to do with the kids. I uh, started out with the uh, slip and slide down by the RV park and some of the sprinklers that were going on down there. Had to come up to the pool with all three of the kids, that was pretty fun. Did something this afternoon that I haven't done for 11 years. I had a seven-year-old daughter that has been waiting to ride the zip line, had never done anything like that before, and I am here to tell you something pretty awesome happened. The zip line was conquered with no fear, no tears, just jump right off the edge. Yeah, pretty cool. And uh, I, was, I was talking about myself, so did my daughter, that was awesome, so it was real. So, let me tell you what 11 years of aging, and I won't tell you how many pounds ago I last did that, those steps got harder to climb. <laughs> that was awful. So we, we were right at the end and tried to get three trips in way too fast, and I am, I am not physically fit to be doing that anymore, and it was fun. We had a blast. Okay, Mark chapter 6. Mark chap- Yeah, that was us coming back up for the third trip right there. Uh, she had a blast. Mark chapter 6, Mark chapter 6, look at verse 30, and I'm going to read down through verse 52. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot. All the towns got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. He answered them, You give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men." Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. 
And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and ask that you would teach us tonight from your word. We ask that your spirit would use your word and apply it to our hearts to give life. Lord, I ask that I would not say more or less than I ought, and that you, you would use your words tonight to bring encouragement to your people. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What does bread and water have to teach us about ministry? In the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, how does that teach you and I about ministry? Now, I don't know how many of you this feeling will resonate with, but I don't know what it's like when you start a new job. It has been very consistent for me. On every single first day of a new job, there's a particular feeling that comes over me. Sure, there's some excitement at times. There might be some nervousness or something, but it, it doesn't matter, you know, if this was working in the grocery store through college or my first day being a pastor, my first day at the camp. Whatever job it was, there's this utter feeling of being overwhelmed. Does any of that hit you ever? There's this insurmountable mountain that you have to climb. So I worked at Burger King in college. I don't know if there were any other fast food, uh, you know, companions that were with me in that environment, but I worked at Burger King, and I, the first day at Burger King, how will I ever learn to take people's money and give them change and fill their drink with ice in the cup and get it out in the right ways? It's like, who, who could ever expect someone to be able to accomplish a job so difficult? You don't have a lot of compassion, people. It was a tough job. This overwhelmed feeling, does that ever hit you when you start something big and you say, how will I ever be able to accomplish the, 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 the task that has been laid out in front of me? And what I want you to think about tonight as we walk through our passage tonight, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and as we consider diving deeper, if you're going to go all in for Christ, there is a job description that God has given you as his follower. It's a very big job description. It's one that is often overwhelming. It's one that often seems insurmountable. And how is it that you and I are ever expected to be able to accomplish everything that God puts in front of us as his followers to be able to accomplish? If you're following along tonight in your notes, you can write down, here's the one thing that I want you to capture tonight. Here's the one thing that I want us to walk away, and it's this. God's provision will always accompany God's appointment. God's provision will always accompany God's appointment. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has appointed to you tasks in the following of him, and God's provision comes with that appointment. Now, I need to stop right here and talk for a second about ministry. The title of our message is Bread, Water, and Ministry. I know there's a lot of people here tonight that are in full-time vocational ministry, and I might even have a word of application for those of you in full-time vocational ministry, but the thrust of the sermon is to all Christians and followers of Jesus Christ. Remember, if you are a Christian, you are called to ministry, not in the full-time sense of being set apart like some are, but you are in the ministry with a ministry to do. God has 
appointed you to certain tasks and responsibilities. I think, uh, Noah, if I could ask you to put up Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18, says this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' expectation when he left his disciples on this earth was that they would carry on the ministry, and by implication, you and I would be involved in making disciples. That's not the job of pastors. That's not the job of missionaries. That's not the job of full-time vocational ministry. If you're a follower of Christ, you're involved in making disciples. Think of Ephesians 4 in the way God has structured and ordered the church. God has given the leaders of the church, the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So if you're one of the saints in the church, God is building his church in and through you, not through the work of the pastor. So if you're a follower of Christ, you have a ministry to do. Perhaps you haven't been thinking about it that way, but you need to be thinking about it that way, that God has a job and instructions for you, and what is it, and how will you fulfill it? And yes, it often seems overwhelming. You're going to watch tonight and listen to Peter, excuse me, listen to Mark lay out for us in the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. And Mark puts these stories together and they relate to one another and they, they teach us something about what Jesus wanted his disciples to catch in how they were supposed to do ministry. We're now in Mark chapter 6. So now for several chapters, Mark has been showing us what the disciples learned in following Jesus. He's already started teaching. He has started his healing ministry. He's started casting out demons. He's already had confrontations with religious leaders. And the disciples have been there learning all of it. And now Jesus is going to send them out. And they themselves are going to have to be involved in doing what they've watched Jesus do. And one of the lessons that the disciples need to learn is not just that Jesus sends them on a mission, but that Jesus' very own power is what's going to equip them and give them the provision to accomplish everything that God asks them to do. And by implication, if you're here as a believer, yes, God has a lot for you to do, but there's a special promise of the provision that comes with God's appointment for you in ministry. Let's look at Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. We're going to first look at the feeding of the 5,000, pull some lessons out of that. You can take notes there, and then we're going to look at Jesus walking on the water. These are familiar stories, but I want you to look at them with fresh eyes, and then we'll think about some of the points of application for us. So let's look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and they said he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So in verse 30, all of the disciples are returning back to Jesus. What's going on? If you go to the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus had just sent them out two by two. It, they had been watching Jesus heal, they had been watching Jesus teach, they had been watching Jesus perform miracles, and now Jesus was commissioning them to send them out and to go and to preach repentance and to perform miracles. And verse 30, they all come back together and they give the testimony service of all testimony services, of all post-mission trip testimony services. That would be the coolest thing. You can imagine what's happening as they're talking 
talking back and forth to one another. You won't believe what happened. You won't believe what I was able to see God accomplish. And they're letting everyone know. But the problem is, they've had such an effective ministry that they are exhausted. They haven't even had time to eat. They're like camp staff that get so busy they skip meals because they're so involved, right? And they, they, they need some rest. And Jesus says, let's go away to a desolate place and let's rest a while. Now, something very interesting happens when Jesus invites them to rest. You're going to find out they don't actually make it. I'm not sure how long they were in that desolate place, but when they get in the boat, you're going to see that a crowd was waiting for them. Well, where was the rest? What was Jesus talking about? We'll try to come back to that towards the end. Keep that thought in mind because Jesus' promise of rest doesn't end up looking like what you and I would have expected after an exhausting, exhausting missions trip. They get in the boat and they go to the other side and notice what happens in verse 33. Now, many saw them going and they recognized him and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. They went ashore and he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So something happens as they're in the boat and they're going across. People begin to recognize. They're able to get there faster. Once again, they're in a desolate place. Once again, the wilderness theme motif that runs throughout Mark comes up. And Jesus gets there and there's a really large crowd. 5,000 men plus the women and children. A phenomenal sized crowd considering that many of the towns in the region would have only had two or 3,000 people. So where are all these people coming from? The Jesus ministry has become so popular that they're there to gather. And notice specifically what the text says. When Jesus was ready for rest, when his disciples were ready for rest, he looks at the people and he sees them like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion, and he wants to teach them. He knows that they need help. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, this idea of sheep and a shepherd is a, a theme that God uses for his people. He says that his, his people, his sheep, need shepherds. Sometimes he condemns the shepherds because they're not shepherding as they should. So He, he gives the promise of a Messiah shepherd who would come and tend to his sheep. And here comes Jesus into the wilderness, and he's going to do something very, very special as the true shepherd, the good shepherd, as he begins to teach the people. And one of the things that you catch in this, well, Jesus is exhausted. He sees the opportunity for ministry. By the way, people are never problems and interruptions. We've got to be reminded of that as God's people. If you have the opportunity to enter into a conversation with someone, that's not an interruption. That, that's not a problem. That's God's grace at work in that person's life and in your schedule to bring them in, in, into your sphere of influence and praise God for that, right? I hope that when you go to church in, with your local body, you're sitting there saying and not just showing up on a Sunday morning to say, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to receive and I'm going to consume. I hope that you realize that God's made you a brick in a building and the rest of the building needs you. And you're there to minister, and you might have encouraging words that build someone up. Just, just take those challenges seriously, right? Ask if you know you're not a compassionate person. Some of us aren't. aren't. We get that. 
ask God to grow that, that, that you would see people as opportunities, not as problems and interruptions the way that Jesus did. Okay, let's keep going. So Jesus ministers to the people. Now the problem is it's getting very late. And the disciples come to Jesus. This is in verse uh, 35, 36. They don't have any food. This is a massive crowd. And they say to Jesus, can you send these people away? Um, get rid of them, Jesus. It's really late. They weren't like problem solving. It wasn't like, hey, Jesus, can you help us solve this problem of these people to eat? It was, Jesus, come on, we're tired. Get rid of these people. Send them away. They need to go buy themselves something to eat. They need to take care of this themselves. We're not the disciples' catering business. Just get them out of here. They can go into the surrounding towns. And Jesus has a very interesting response. He says in verse 37, he answered them, you give them something to eat. The you is emphatic. You yourselves deal with this. They asked Jesus, let them take care of this. And Jesus says, you do it. Now the disciples still aren't on board. Uh, Jesus, we don't think this is a great plan. He says to them, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it, something, and give it to them to eat? Now, this, is a, this isn't a genuine question. This is a sarcastic response. A denarii was the average day's wage for a common laborer. So 200 days of wages, this is a fantastic sum of money. And one of the other gospels lets us know that even if they had that much money, $20,000, $30,000, whatever it might be, even if we had that, not everybody could even get a morsel. And so their point is, listen, Jesus... We don't have that kind of money, and even if we did, it wouldn't be enough anyways. And if you're paying attention, if you come back to the beginning of chapter 6, it's in verse 8, when Jesus commissioned them and sent them out, he said, don't take a money bag with you. So the disciples' response here is, listen, it's late, get rid of them, we don't have that money, you told us not to bring it, and even if we had 200 denarii, that still wouldn't be enough. And Jesus keeps going. And he says, well, how much do you have? And they say, five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus then takes, he looks to heaven, and he takes the loaves, and he blesses them, and he breaks them, and he gives them. It's a very interesting wordplay that's filled with meaning. And now Jesus is going to show his disciples all of his great Authority and power and in his person. By the way, I forgot this when we started the feeding of the 5,000. In whatever we're supposed to be learning and whatever the disciples were supposed to be learning, look at verse 52. Verse 52. At the end of the walking on the water, I'm jumping forward here. At the end of the walking on the water, they did not understand about the loaves for their hearts were hardened. So keep in mind as we're going through this, whatever lesson they were supposed to be catching, they weren't getting it. Their hearts were hardened and they missed it. So Jesus now, now that he has the five loaves and the two fishes, he's going to perform this fantastic miracle. And he gets everybody in groups and he has them sit down and he looks to heaven, verse 41. He blesses, he breaks, he gives. And then there's something very interesting that happens. We often think of this miracle as Jesus feeding the 5,000 and that's true. That's where the emphasis should be. Jesus is the one who performs something incredible. But the disciples themselves are very intentionally included in what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 41. Jesus gives the disciples a job in this miracle. He commissions them and helps them accomplish it. In verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he 
broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. It's almost as if the disciples take care of the bread, Jesus takes care of the fish. There may have been some overlap, but it's very significant that it's called out. Jesus gives the bread to the disciples and he wants them to go accomplish this aspect of the ministry. He says, you yourselves take care of this problem. How many loaves do you have? Jesus gives them the bread and they go accomplish this. It's a very significant thing to see everything that's accomplished. Now, why is it that they didn't understand? By the way, the significance of the miracle, they all ate and were satisfied, verse 42. They took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and the fish, and those who ate the loaves were about 5,000 men. So why does Mark say that they didn't understand about the loaves? It's not that they missed what Jesus did. They saw what he did. I think they grasped the fact that food was multiplied, They didn't understand what it meant and what it signified about Jesus. So we're going to come back to that and try to tie it together. Let's keep going and look then at the feeding, uh, excuse me, at the walking on water. Let's look at the walking on water in verse 45. So immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. John tells us that at this point, after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowd is so enamored with the person of Jesus that they're ready by force to take him and make him king. Jesus realizes, hold on, time out. The plan isn't right yet. This is outside of God's plan. And so with that backstory, you understand why in verse 45, he made the disciples get into a boat. Uh, He compels them. This is very, very significant that Jesus intentionally puts the disciples in this situation. So they're going across the water. Uh, They are in the middle of a fierce storm such that they can't row anywhere. They're getting stuck. The wind is too strong. By the way, Jesus didn't jump into the boat with them. He goes off by himself to pray. And as the disciples are out there stuck about the fourth watch of the night, this would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the middle of the night, Jesus sees that they're in uh, distress and he intends to walk past them and they see him. They're greatly afraid and astounded that he's able to walk on water. They think they're seeing a ghost. He says, no, it's, it's me, it's Jesus. And he gets in the boat and the water is instantly calmed. And it says, the, the, Mark records the disciples' response as being astounded because they didn't understand about the loaves and their hearts were hardened. So what is the application and the lessons that we're supposed to draw out of this walking on the water? Well, number one, let's come back to that concept in verse 45 where I said that Jesus compelled them. You could translate that he, that he compelled them. It was of force that God drove his disciples. So think of it this way. Why do the disciples find themselves in a situation they can't handle? Why do the disciples find themselves on the brink of um, ruin. Is it because they disobeyed? No, it's precisely because they obeyed. It was their obedience that put them in such a significant trial. Do you have a category for that? At times when it seems like circumstances are beyond your control, are you willing to acknowledge that you might be in this very situation because there's a God who loves you and he wants to teach you something even through difficult circumstances? I get, 
there's so many Christians that look at difficult circumstances. I wonder how many of us would look at this situation and say, man, there's the disciples trying to do something great. They're trying to row across the water and feed people, and there's that pesky Satan just trying to mess up their plans, right? The way some Christians talk about Jesus and Satan as if there's this, well, God wants to do something great. I hope he's stronger than Satan because sometimes Satan wins. I'm not denying the reality of spiritual warfare. Uh, I'm just saying that we need to acknowledge that there's times when God in his love allows difficult things to happen so that we would learn from him, so that we would grow, so that he could teach us, so he could sanctify us. We need to be careful about giving Satan credit for the good things God is trying to bring about in our lives, even when they're painful. There's another lesson that we need to think about, and it's down here in verse 48. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. What does that mean? The first time I read that, it was very shocking. It was, what is Jesus up to? It's almost as if, so Jesus wanted to walk by on the water and just kind of show them, ha ha, I can get there before you. I meant to pass you, you know, it's like you're getting out in the fast lane and boom, just lay the pedal to the metal. What, what was Jesus' point? Well, there's quite a bit of debate about what that phrase means, so there's more than one option, but I want to lay out for you the one that I think is the best, and there's a few reasons that, that seem to support this. It's not that Jesus was intending to get around them or get beyond them or beat them to the finish line. If Jesus wanted to avoid being seen, he could. Jesus, it seems, intended for them to see him as he went by. I was helped as I was reading through, uh, Dane Ortland has a book, Gentle and Lowly, and he's got a section on this, and there's some other commentators that bring it out as well. But when you think about pass by them, go back to the story of the Exodus. By the way, there's quite a bit of Exodus history in Mark chapter 6. So there's Jesus Feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness, God provided manna for his people in the wilderness. There's Jesus walking on the water uh, and calming the sea to avoid danger. And you've got uh, in Exodus where where God's people cross the Red Sea to uh, avoid the to evade the Egyptian army as Pharaoh and his armies were drowned. There's many parallels through all of this. Okay, sorry, I got sidetracked. I do that every now and then. He meant to pass by them, all right? Exodus 33. Uh, Do you remember when Moses was leading God's people into the promised land in Exodus 33? And God was so frustrated with the, uh, I don't know if frustrated with the right word, but God was gotten to the point with this stiff-necked, hard-hearted people that he says, you go into the land, but I'm not going with you. And Moses realizes how devastating that situation would be. And Moses pleads with God and he intercedes and he says, please God, if you don't go with us, this won't work. You have to go with us. And so God says, yes, because of your intercession, I will go with you. And Moses has a special request of God. He says, God, I would like to see your glory. And God says, I will show you all of my goodness. And in Exodus 33, God tells Moses, I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock and I'm going to pass in front of you but you won't be able to see my face. And in Exodus 33, in verse 20, here is what God says to Moses. He says this, But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory 
passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Throughout chapter 33 and 34, that that verb pass by comes up four times and it's translated the exact same way as the word there in Mark. What did God want? He wanted to pass by so that he would be seen. Come to Mark chapter 6 with the disciples. Jesus wasn't trying to get past the disciples. He wanted to get in front of them to show them himself. He wanted to pass by so they would see he's the Lord of creation. The one who made the water is walking on the water. There's massive divine significance. You don't just walk on water. You don't just defy gravity. You you can't do these things unless you're the one who made these things. And because Jesus was able to do it, the disciples should have saw it. They shouldn't have just said, wow, this is something amazing. They should have said, who is this guy? They'd already seen him calm the storm in chapter 4. And here again, Jesus now walks on the water. He allows himself to pass by so that they can see. And they're afraid and they call out, he says, it's it's me. It's I. And he gets in the boat and, and the waves then are calm. And it specifically says the response of the disciples, if you look in verse 51, he gets into the boat with them. The wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Now, at first glance, you might think that's a good place to be. The disciples get it. They're amazed is the way you could translate that word. You could translate it uh, to be astounded, to to be or to become astounded to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. We think of this as a good response, but in Mark, it's often the response of the crowd, The one who are just impressed with some of the outward things, but they aren't yet walking in faith. This word, here's the way this word would work. So if you go down to the Iowa State Fair, and if you're walking through the tractor, if you go into wherever John Deere is displaying all of their tractors, and if you've ever seen tractors, you know there's some pretty cool ones on display at the fair. And I'm not talking just the little tractors. Let's go like to the biggest of the biggest tractors, right? And you see a tractor that just kind of blows you away, right? You've never seen tires that big. You've never seen that many tires on a tractor. I mean, you've seen cool tractors, but this is up there, you know. And you're asking this John Deere rep how much a tractor like this costs, because this is the one at the top that has all the bells and whistles. And he says, yeah, this one's going to run you back 750 grand, you know. And you're like, you're impressed, okay. You, you've seen expensive tractors. You, you're not to this word yet, right? Because you've, I mean, come on, you're from Iowa and Minnesota, and you've seen a lot of tractors, Okay. So then you ask if he'll start it up, and he decides to start it up, and the engine is unlike anything you've heard, and out of these side compartments come these jet engine type things that allow the tractor to levitate and fly off into space. (laughs) Now you're at this word. You have no category for flying tractors, right? This is the disciples at this moment. They're like, wow, we have never seen. But they're not yet, like by faith, they're not yet connecting everything in who Jesus is. They're pretty impressed. They like the things Jesus can provide, but they don't yet understand who he is in his person. And here's the thing we need to catch. There is a danger when we are impressed by God, but we are not living by faith in a real relationship of who he is. And there are some who go through life, they enjoy the things that church provides, they enjoy some of the things about God, 
but they aren't truly living by faith. They're not going all in for Christ because they're just one of some of the bystanders who from time to time get astounded and impressed, but they, they haven't connected the dots because their hearts are hardened and they don't yet understand truly who the person of Jesus is. And that's why Mark ends this with the disciples walking on the water. He says, for they didn't understand about the loaves. There was divine significance in someone who could, who could feed his people in the wilderness just like God provided for his people manna in the wilderness. There is divine significance of one who can walk on water because he's the one who made the water. So, as we think about this, how do we think about ministry for you and I? Why is it that in the disciples' inability to understand about the loaves and have hardened hearts, now we need to come back to that question of the rest that the people needed. Jesus was inviting his disciples to rest in verse 31. They had exhausted themselves in the ministry. Come aside and rest. What was Jesus intending? I think physical rest is in view. And at some point it came into the picture. But I think there's another dimension that the disciples needed to learn. They needed to learn true rest in the one who would be able to provide for every single one of their needs. They needed to learn what it was like to rest in Jesus' provision. Why in verse 8 did Jesus tell the disciples not to take a money bag? Because they needed to rest in the one who would provide for them. Now, why does Jesus tell them to feed 5,000 people? Because they needed to learn to the rest in the one who would be able to multiply food. And brothers and sisters, get this. We serve a God who did not just come to this earth and multiply loaves to feed 5,000 people. He came to this earth so that he himself, his own body would be broken, that his sacrifice on the cross would eternally, spiritually provide for the sins of all those who would come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That's the rest that we have. And not only do we have rest in terms of our relationship with God in salvation, but now God has given us ministry to do. He has put us into his task. And just like he told the disciples, here, come, watch what I do, do what I do, and his own spirit provided the power and nourishment for it. That's the thing that happens for us. It is not us, it is Christ in us. Yet not I, but Christ in me. Why in the Great Commission does Jesus tell his disciples to go make disciples of all nations? Do you catch the promise that is closed in there? Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here's the thing, you guys. God has people in your life that he has sovereignly put in your life that he wants you to minister to and the ability to do that will not come from your own power and your own strength. You can't change anyone's life. I can't change anyone's life. Who changes people's lives? It's the Spirit of God using the Word of God and you might be a tool that God uses to affect someone's life. If you're waiting for the day that you say, I think I can do it. I can start that ministry. I'm capable. Now I have the gifts. Now I'm ready. That's not the way ministry works. 
That day may not come, likely won't come. God, God specializes in using those that the world would see as ill-equipped. God specializes in using, it's not about your ability, but your willingness to be used by the one who is able to accomplish things in and through your lives. So who is it that, for some of you, this might be a massive step just to say, well, you know, there's somebody in my church that I could approach, and we could just, we could do coffee this week. And we could read Mark chapter 1. And we could talk about it. And we could pray. No homework. Next week we'll get together for chapter 2, or next month. That might be a massive step for some of you. Or for some of you, there's a ministry that you need to get involved in in your church that you've been nervous about and not sure if you're ready to do this kind of thing. But, but you need to. And you need to realize that the strength and the power to do it won't come from yourselves. It, it will come from a God who, who not only has provided for your salvation, but who has given you his very self to accomplish ministry. And whatever appointment God gives you, that provision will always accompany it. And that's what we need to be reminded of. I, had, I didn't intend to say this tonight, but as I've gotten to know a few of you, there's several here that are in full-time vocational ministry. And just a word to some of you. Those of you uh, pastors, missionaries, whoever it might be in full-time vocational ministry, we are often some of the biggest offenders of trying to do ministry in and through our own strength. And that will never work. We will burn out so... There's only so much of us to go around, and we're not the ones that change people's lives, right? Our people need Jesus. They do not need us. And we often try to minister in and out of our own reservoirs, and we quickly run out. There's an author that has put it this way as he described pastoral ministry, and he, he kind of set the standard of this is, this is what you as shepherds are supposed to do, and he said it this way after such an insurmountable mountain. He said, it's a tall order, and to be honest, an impossible task. Who of us is capable of these things? There's not a man among us who is up for this job, left to our own devices. Humanly speaking, we just don't have it in us to be able to be ministers of the New Testament and discerning physicians of the soul. But of course, that's what I've been telling you all along. Try and do this relying on your own devices and you'll crash and burn, spiraling into depletion and failure. But while you cannot do this work by your own reason or strength, God the Holy Spirit will equip you with every good gift working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight as you serve in Christ's name instead. Brothers and sisters, whether you're in full-time vocational ministry or not, the making of disciples and, and the building up of churches and the spreading of the gospel and the one-anothering commands of the New Testament is a very tall order for us. And it will often seem overwhelming. But what we have to keep in mind is that God's Spirit is the one that enables that kind of ministry. He's the one that can feed 5,000 and that can walk on water. And he desires to bring glory to himself and you might be a part of his plan. Praise God. Ask him to do that in your life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you work in our hearts and lives? So often, Father, we think it is about us when it needs to be about Christ in us. Lord, I pray that we would be people who don't seek to live the Christian life in and through our own strengths and effort, 
but that we would rest in the one who truly can provide for life and ministry, the one who has infinite strength. Encourage those who are weary. Encourage those who are fearful. Encourage us to make disciples on your behalf. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.